Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. For new and returning listeners, you may know you can find the podcast on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com or on Twitter at Minorities in Pub, as well as various places you can listen to podcasts. I am super happy to welcome Carla Benton, who is a senior production editor and a freelance copy editor. And I, I just am so stoked to be able to talk to you, Carla, because you are my people. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you too, especially knowing that you have a background in this corner of the industry as well. Carla and I were speaking before I pressed record about how funny it is a lot of the time that even if we're in production, we still kind of do freelance work. It's an interesting way to attempt to balance it, I guess. Like it didn't feel overwhelming when I did it, but I can see how it can be. Yes, now I definitely try to be mindful of now only accepting freelance projects for books that truly interest me, especially since as a production editor, we're not reading the book simple. I do not think I've had another production editor on because I know I've usually spoken to it in previous episodes. So A, I'm curious how you got into production, but I think first it might be helpful for people to kind of understand what does a production editor do? First, I'd say like there can often be confusion between managing editorial and production editorial. And I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I feel like managing editorial has meant something different at every publisher I've worked at. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with digital magazines, right? Mm -hmm. Because the managing editor might do a lot more of the content at a Mm -hmm. place like Catapult or The Atlantic or other stuff. And then you get into book publishers. And I agree, it's a very different role. Well, I was actually only speaking specifically to book publishing, and my career trajectory has been within three of the big five. But even then, I felt like two of those houses, managing ed, meant something different in each one, and one of them didn't have managing ed at all. Yeah. At university presses, we didn't have it, but then one person got the title of managing editor. And I was Mm -hmm. like, that's weird. But then when I went to PRH, managing editorial at Random House was different from it in Penguin. Mm-hmm. Like, so the managing editors at Penguin were more production editors. Right. The ones, who had, <laughs> the ones yeah. who had managing editor in their title, that was more like they had worked their way up. And so yeah. that it came as the result of promotions. Whereas when I was at SNS, managing ed was entirely separate and was more dealing with like scheduling and list management. Yep. And yep. that's kind of how it is at where I am currently at St. Martin's at McMillan. Some managing editors do still production edit some books, but I think that's more by choice and a lot of them only deal with the list management and scheduling aspects. Meanwhile, production editors, which is what I do, we're a lot closer to the text themselves since we oversee copy editing and proofreading and we edit material during correction rounds and we actually have to outsource every single book to a freelance copy editor and later a freelance proofreader. And so that's the work that I do on the side for other production editors. Yeah, that was pretty much my role at university presses. I was always hiring people and reviewing Mm -hmm. their work and all that stuff. And then when I was at managing it, I was just doing schedules, Mm -hmm. which was really a big different thing because I would start to do stuff and they're like, no, that's copy editing. They had two different departments. Mm -hmm. So they had production, which really dealt with the specs and getting the book to the printer and handing over files and then copy editing, did all Mm -hmm. the copy editing. They hired the copy editors and us managing editors were making sure the materials got to each person and handling schedules. And that was just a culture shock to me. I was just Mm -hmm. like, so I'm not touching the book? And they're like, no, you're not reading it. You're just checking the ISBN and make his bins and da da da. And even on the production editor side, sometimes people are surprised to learn that we don't actually read and edit entire text in full either. But 
we work on so many books, there are just not enough hours in the day or the week. Don't have time. You don't have the time at all. Mm. And so I always think in trade, I think your volume is so much larger too. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And then there's backlist. And for people who don't know, backlist are the books that have been published. So frontlist is like the newer titles as they're coming out or like within the first few months, you become backlist pretty quickly. (laughs) Right. Because people are already talking about paperbacks for next. And I'm like, it is June. Why are you talking to me about this paperback that doesn't come out until April? I don't want to talk about it. Right. (laughs) So it's also, it's a very kind of people oriented job, but it's also a job where you really do. It's pretty independent work. Right. Right. And you just have to have such a keen eye for details constantly. Yes, definitely. There are definitely a lot of moving parts, a lot of key players. But at the same time, especially now that we're remote, like it's a job that doesn't really have much face time with other people. So how did you get into that part? Did you, when you entered publishing as freelancer, as full-timer, was it straight to production or copy editing and all that? Or did you have a little bit of a roundabout way of getting there? A little bit of both. So I went to college in New York. I went to NYU. So I was able to do several publishing internships during the academic year. And one of them was the department. They, they actually like to make things even more confusing. They called themselves copy editing, but it was a production editorial department. And that was one of my first internships at Penguin. After that one, like I really enjoyed that work. And I was pretty sure that that's what I wanted to do. That's the kind of job that I wanted to pursue when I graduated. But it was a little bit challenging because but there weren't a lot of entry-level production editorial jobs. So a lot of people usually had to start somewhere else as an editorial assistant or maybe a managing editorial assistant or something else transitioning into that. So that's kind of how it worked out for me. I got a job in a production editorial department, but it was a lot of scheduling and data entry. It wasn't very hands-on. And so in that time, I took copy editing and proofreading classes, which I was lucky my employer was willing to reimburse me for. And then I started freelancing on the side then. And so those things helped to make me stand out to move up to be my second job was an assistant production editor, production editor. And then eventually I was over New York City and moved to Chicago and switched to freelancing full-time. Are you from Chicago? No, I'm not. I grew up in Houston and I lived in New York for a very long time. And And I visited Chicago and just really liked it new. Eventually, I eventually wanted to move here, but put it off for a long time because I was pretty convinced that if I left New York, I would probably have to quit publishing. It was on the back burner for a long time until I finally just decided I needed to make that change then. Oh, okay. You've been able to thrive. Yes, for sure. I feel like my quality of life is so much better here. I initially, I thought I would have to quit publishing to leave New York because even when I was freelancing on the side there, I never thought that my that my network was big enough for it to be sustainable. Turned out to be wrong about that because the cost of living is a lot lower here. That proved to be more than sustainable for about five years. And then the pandemic hit and learned that production editors actually can work remotely. And I was actually asked to cover while somebody was on leave in this department, St. Martin's at McMillan. And a few months after that, I thought that was very temporary. It would be a, a steady paycheck every week for, I think it was supposed to be six weeks to start. And then it was extended. And then they got the green light to bring more people in. And so that's when they asked me to come back about a year ago now. I feel like copy editing is such a unique skill for people to mm-hmm. even pursue, let alone nail in some ways. Cause I, you know, I, I think we miss stuff. Yeah. You know, I, like, I was definitely, everything, but we're, we're pretty good at it. I, think. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was definitely intimidated by it 
for a while. Like even my first few years as a freelancer, I mostly only did proofreading and cold reading. And then it helped to start that way because, you know, as a proofreader, you're comparing it against the marked up copy edited manuscript. So you are able to get to see what a good copy edit looks like most of the time. So that was a good way to study it for a while. And then also as a production editor, cleaning up manuscripts for design, a lot of that is you're evaluating the copy editor's work and deciding like what to set, what to keep, reviewing how the author handled it. And so that was also, I guess, studying in a way that I felt like after a few years of doing those, then I felt more confident about it and started asking more of my connections to let me try copy editing. And so I guess maybe like two or three years into freelancing is when I started doing that. Yeah. And I feel like you have to keep doing it. So Mm -hmm. I think what's lucky for me is because I work on manuscripts all the time is Mm -hmm. I still get to be a copy editor in a way. (laughs) When I'm looking at some of these things, like I was looking at something right before we started recording and I was just like, why do you use the comma in this way? (laughs) What are you doing? Right. This Um, is inconsistent. Like, what are you uh saying? (laughs) Why do you keep saying they realize things? (laughs) In every in-house job I've I've ever had, they've always strongly recommended that we take a copy editing and proofreading class that they'll usually pay us to do. And since so much of this, we do learn on the job. It's hard to work on books when you're not like in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely think like a, that's something that is worth taking advantage of. Yeah, even, especially if they pay for it. Even if you don't want to freelance, like it's definitely useful because of the fact that we're evaluating, copy editing, and proofreading from all our freelancers and need to know mm-hmm. what makes our job well done. And those <laughs> tests are really important too, because I feel like, again, I always had to take a test and I had some courses I didn't like and some I did. I'm better in person than remotely, personally. <laughs> So like when I learn and even when I teach, I just get more from the in-person. So I did take two media bistros. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't like these because they were very beginner level. And by that mm-hmm. time, I had been in the industry for a bit as an editorial assistant. Mm-hmm. And I wanted like hard stuff. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, I wanted this stuff I'm going to miss. <laughs> I felt like those were hard to find, too. At least in the early aughts, they were kind of hard because everyone was being so easy on everybody. And I was like, oh, I want the hard stuff. Well, I know when I took NYU's, they had separate copy editing and proofreading classes, which I thought was really beneficial instead of trying to cram it all into one session in one semester. But I'm pretty sure now it's just one combined course. So if anybody ever asks me to recommend courses, that's usually my recommendations are courses taught by industry professionals. And if you can find and take separate copy editing and proofreading courses, not one that crams everything into one session. For sure. Because really are different skills. But also remember people, if you're interviewing for these jobs freelancer full-time, you will get a test. So do not be surprised with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so those tests, honestly, are such a pain to score and grade just because there are so many mistakes on so few pages. Right. And I remember creating a test, which was kind of fun and also very daunting at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope I still have a record of it because I'm very proud of that test. <laughs> I'm super proud of that because, you know, also sometimes you get the old tests. You're like, mm-hmm. this is a test y'all have been using since the 90s. I yeah. can tell. 
ours, I can tell, has been like scanned so many times instead of right. created in Adobe. <laughs> right. I understand the time this takes to create. Mm-hmm. It ain't broke. Don't fix it. But God forbid anyone loses those hard copies. <laughs> right. <laughs> The master Uh, document. You know, for how much we used to work on page proofs and hard copy, it seems kind of impossible to believe now that I never dealt with like marked up page groups getting lost in the mail for any book I've ever worked on. I don't know if you have. You haven't? No. Oh my God, you're so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Especially now. Now stuff is getting lost all the time. I'm not really, everything I'm doing now is completely digital. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The university press I worked at, I had that happen a couple times. One Mm -hmm. where the package got pretty destroyed. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that maybe something that I got sent, that sent out got Mm -hmm. lost, but like never something coming back marked up from the proprietor or the author that got lost and they had to redo. I don't know if anything like that ever happened to you. Yeah. The two times it happened where it was like freaking me out <laughs> was when one got lost and one got destroyed. Oh, man. Thankfully, I think that guy, no, that guy did not keep a copy. He just said he would rush it and do it again. And I asked them to pay him more money because that wasn't his right. fault. Yeah, I yeah. was like, I think we should pay him more money because he's doing us a solid and it wasn't his fault. Because I would always send the labels too. It was FedEx. Mm-hmm. So I was, sorry FedEx, but y'all, what the hell? I would put the labels in rather than have them pay for it. They're like, no, I just have them go to well, the... And I was like, we're not paying them that much. I'm just going to print out a return label and they can just send it back to me. This is absurd. I'm glad you brought that up because that's another reason I didn't think freelancing full-time would be sustainable when I left New York because not everyone is willing to do that. And it's very expensive if you do it on your own dime. Anytime anybody would offer me a proofreading job or I would ever accept it, I would ask, are you going to include a UPS label with that? And you shouldn't even have to ask, <laughs> which is the <laughs> ridiculous part. It's like, we're not, especially university presses, ugh, the pay is crap. Sorry, people, but (laughs) keeping it real. The pay is not good. Trade usually pays better than university presses. And I was like, I'm not going to ask them to pay like another 25 bucks to get Mm -hmm. this to me in three days, two or three days ground. This is absurd. Right. Especially since we also, on the inside, we can apply that corporate discount. But if it's the freelancer going to FedEx or UPS or wherever, trying to overnight something back that weighs a few pounds, it's not going to be cheap. It isn't. It isn't. And then you might rush it to be nice. And then, you know, I was like, no, mm-hmm. I, I'm like, we are a major university. We can do this. And, right. and it also it, buys us so much more time now because you don't lose that time while it's in transit. And then mm-hmm. making sure that you get it back on the deadline they're asking for or something else. Like every time somebody would ask for something due on a Monday, I'd be like, can you make it a Tuesday so that I can overnight it on the Monday? Not the Friday. Right. All this ridiculousness. I don't think my former colleagues do this anymore because they've been remote for the most part, especially since they were on a campus. Mm -hmm. Um, So they really couldn't because the campus was pretty much shut down too. So I think they did finally go full digital on the proofreading as well. It honestly still appalls me that so many major publishers were still doing so much hard copy proofreading right until March 2020. Yeah, I mean, sometimes that was at the preference of the freelancers, I will say. Some of my freelancers were pretty adamant about it. They're like, I don't like working on a screen, or I don't know how to work on a screen, and so I want to do paper. That was definitely not me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's how I felt like during 2020, was like, ah, don't make me look at a screen anymore, God. Mm -hmm. But yeah, most of mine was 
online as well since I was working on PDFs. I mean, I think it's pretty easy. I don't know about you. You know, you do the strike through, the replace, the highlights. The because mm-hmm. remember earlier on, like I don't know if you were dealing with this years ago. Now we're getting kind of nerdy, listeners. <laughs> but there were stamps. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the stamps? I do. And like in my experience, that wasn't even that long ago. Some of my clients just started using stamps maybe Get in out. like 2018 or so. <laughs> and For people who don't know, the stamps were like the proofreader or copy editor marks mm-hmm. that you had to add to the PDF. So instead of using the PDF function of like cross this out or replace this, if you're in Adobe, we had stamps that we actually used to have to place mm-hmm. on the document. I, I will say that when when I was first introduced to the stamps, I didn't mind them, especially like for a slug when you're checking corrections against the other. I initially thought that it was easier to compare them side by side with the stamp markup. But as soon as I was hired again as a production editor, I was converted. And now I know like the strike through and the highlighter and all those things are much more efficient. Super efficient because I used to typeset too. No, no. my stamps were horrible. For the designer, the person doing the interior, it was horrible. It's like, what the hell is that? What is it covering? So what do you want me to do? I don't know what's happening anymore. (laughs) So Carla, being another person of color in this particular aspect of the industry, I found that Sometimes production was where more of the people of color were. (laughs) I'm not finding that in my current job at all, but I did find it in previous jobs. And so it was always interesting to me because I was like, huh, is this where we are? Are you talking about production or production production editorial? Yeah, production specifically. Yeah. Okay. Then yes, I would agree for production specifically, but not necessarily for production editorial. Thoughts on that? Because like we were saying earlier, this isn't a a role I think many people know about. And I Mm -hmm. think it's an incredibly important role because the books literally don't get done. Right. Uh, Well, we were talking to before about how much work we used to still do on hard copy. And can't believe like we were doing that so long. Like as a freelancer, I pretty much exclusively work for the big five. And some of them were working digitally in 2020. But I also had clients that all of them that were not that were still sending out hard copy proofs for everything. And on the inside, I feel like that my last few years in New York City, when I was so burnt out and finally decided to leave, I felt like it was because living there was becoming especially inaccessible and forcing us to do these jobs in person, working on hard copy. I felt definitely served as a a method to gatekeep who could have these jobs, who was privileged enough to be able to make a publishing salary work and make those kind of sacrifices to be in New York City. Yeah, and we're still kind of facing that now again. And every job that I held when I still lived in New York I was one of the only production editors of color. And I know like every job I left, I was not replaced by a person of color. So by leaving, you know, I was leaving a pretty white space that was becoming even whiter. And I do feel like remote work has helped to improve that because where I currently am, I'm not their only new hire. They've The specific department has hired several women of color in higher roles in the last year. And being on a Zoom now with... 15 people and having a third of them be people of color is something that I never experienced in my time in New York. Mm, that makes sense. <laughs> Another theory I have is that production people don't leave. They retire. To your point where you're saying it was hard to get entry-level jobs, I found that entry-level was a little bit easier, not always, but what was hard was always getting like the middle or further up. Like You had to really start from the bottom in production. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't literally 
I got jobs in production because people were retiring or they created the position. Mm -hmm. Both of those things, like a lot of times somebody had to retire or leave for another job. I feel like in the big five production editorial and and managing editorial is like, it's a big game of musical chairs. The way, in my Mm -hmm. experience, the way to move up and get a solid pay bump is to take the next step at another company. So each of my jobs, I never had an in-house promotion. I worked my way up the ladder by getting a job at another house at the next level. And that be- can become harder because, again, I just don't think people leave in those particular roles. In the current place I'm at, they did hire someone entry level, a woman of color, and they did hire a new PE because I think they realized they're just overwhelmed. And I'm not sure if that person is a person of color. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I don't even know that y'all are bringing in a good amount of people of color, just like one. <laughs> mm-hmm. at a very entry level which means they're not really working on my books right at all and, and are we being mentored and nurtured to move up in these roles if these roles like you said don't necessarily come up in mm-hmm. the place you're at it's true like at the last few places i've worked i've also noticed a lot of those lower level posts in production editorial a lot of times are getting eliminated and s- some departments only the lowest level they have is production editor so it's hard to to break in it is a good job y'all <laughs> yeah. i recommend y'all please more marginalized people go into production you need yes to i agree <laughs> and you know, like to be more specific, I'm a Latina and I've never seen many other or have rarely seen other Hispanic or Latino production editors or managing editors and actually only ever worked alongside one and at two different jobs, it was the same person. Wow. Yeah. At my university press job, it was me and another black guy, a Latinx guy. He would later leave. The reprints coordinator was a black woman. And then two of the other production editors who were more senior, they were both queer and white. So Mm -hmm. technically our department was the most marginalized (laughs) of all the departments because editorial was pretty much white. Like the two assistants they had were people of color, but the editors were all white. And then finance. That was always another thing. It was like certain departments, finance or reception. You always found the people of color there. Um, And warehouse. That's where the people of color. (laughs) In a lot of those departments too, like you mentioned editorial too, like a lot of times they could only be found in those lower level positions. And right now, I'm pretty excited right now to be participating in the POC Pub mentorship program because there was nothing like that when I was getting started. There was not a lot of nurturing happening back then. Mm -hmm. Through the nonprofit POC and Pub? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mentor, she's a recent college grad in a managing ed role at a publisher. So mm-hmm. it's been super interesting for me too, like learning. She did an internship starting in the pandemic and is starting her career that way. An inside look of how different it was from when I was first getting started. I have plenty of advice to give her for experiences I had in my career that looking back, I wish I could have handled differently. Same as I mentor someone at my current job and she is in managing it. So it's always been interesting to be able to engage. And she's brilliant and wonderful and doesn't live in New York City either. So I really hope she stays in the industry uh-huh. uh, because she's working remotely. And I hope they don't pull something where it's like, well, you really should come closer to New York City. It's like, no, 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 no. She does this job effectively <laughs> from where she is. Right. Let her be. She's like one of the very few in this industry. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, leave her alone and mentor her. And in my current job too, like last Last year, we, uh, we had an intern who was a woman of color and she was she was remote. And so she 
was attending school in the Midwest at the same time. And I think that's such a good advantage now that people who aren't in New York City can do the kind of things during the academic year the way that I was able to. I went to school in New York City, so I hope those advantages continue to exist. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the responsibilities of the job and especially, you know, like not to like focus on us only as people of color because we are obviously multi-layered individuals, <laughs> but the issue of when there aren't that many of us, how are we getting the resources to help produce these books if the mandate to editorial is bring in more diverse books, but then we don't have those people on staff. And then potentially you don't have those people as freelancers either. Or so it's a continual replenishment of an arsenal that doesn't exist. I keep getting this from my own colleagues of, well, who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? And I'm just like, well, at what point are we going to just sit down collectively and be like, we are actively going to bring in more freelancers of color as well as more staff Mm -hmm. of color. And in that role where you're hiring freelancers and proofreaders, I wonder, A, for people who are potential freelancers, what is a way for them to get on your radar and for them to do what they need to do? Like you mentioned the classes, especially if you are in a position of having that reimbursed for you. But are there other ways for people to get on your radar that is not intrusive? I think Twitter can be a good resource for that because I guess it was about a year ago now I started seriously thinking about how it seemed like a lot of the freelance projects that I was being offered sometimes were because maybe I was one of the only freelancers of color that production editor had in their roster. While I might be able to maybe flag things that could be problematic or insensitive. I'm obviously, I'm not an expert on every single culture out there. And I started thinking about sometimes if the project I was working on wasn't necessarily in its last stage, like maybe I was the copy editor or maybe I was the proofreader and it was going to get a cold read later. If I knew somebody who would also be a good fit or perhaps would have been a better fit, I would return the project and suggest that they hire that person for the next part. And at the time, I was also starting to think about this, that a lot of production editors maybe don't know where we are, don't know how to find us. And I also thought about the fact that even when I still worked in-house, the departments that I worked in, especially because like we were talking about before, some positions were disappearing or it's harder to break in. I was never seeing, like in the divisions that I worked in, in my time there, I was never seeing younger people of color like being hired after me in my years there and so last year I tweeted about this just asking where more people are just that I wanted to connect with more people because surely we were out there and since then there are so many more connections I've made I have so many new freelancers of color so I definitely recommend that method and also maybe cold calling I don't know pitching (laughs) (laughs) what do you call it now because you don't really call people anymore and you don't really mail stuff because people aren't really in the office and Mm -hmm. not trying to get your home address like that (laughs) well when you say cold pitching like where would you go to cold pitch something yeah and I wonder if they are finding you because I feel like you and I aren't the only type of production people Again, I'm technically not, but you know what I mean. That we're online. You're still one of us. I know, I'm still one of us. One of us, one of us. But I felt like, again, like when I think about a lot of the people that I have or do work with, a lot of them don't have that online presence at all, but beyond maybe a LinkedIn, maybe. Mm -hmm. If that, because they've been at a company, I will die on this hill. They don't Mm -hmm. quit they retire Uh (laughs) and they stay at these jobs forever. And so that just narrows it down even more to the point they're just waiting for the recommendations, not doing the work that you're doing 
of, hey, I'm actually on this app. I want to make it useful to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, How do I find more people? How do I find things? Because I know I was very, very frustrated when I Google a lot. Sure, you do too, because, you know, you freelance. Mm -hmm. And literally, I put in the words Black Copy Editors. And there is a site called (laughs) BlackCopyEditors.com. There's a site. It came up on the first search page. I didn't even have to click through, just first search page. Mm-hmm. I sent this to people at my job, and they said, Oh, wow, I never knew about this. And I said, Oh my God. <laughs> That's what frustrated me was that I just happened to do it and that I found it. <laughs> yeah, I just happened to do it. Yeah. One day out of the blue, because I was like, Maybe there's a site. There is a site. Yes. It's not like a comprehensive site of hundreds of people, but there's like a dozen or so or more people on that. So to me, that is the base level of work Mm -hmm. that one can do on top of what you did of, hey, I'm just going to put out a call. So now I have these connections. To me, these things aren't hard. And now I'm speaking to the other level. I'm speaking to us as those in the industry of like what we can do to find people. And you Mm -hmm. said what you did. And even then, when when I did that, I was still a freelancer myself. And so I I didn't necessarily do it because I needed needed to hire freelancers. I was just like, I want to know more people that are out there just because I feel like I don't know of many, Mm. but I don't believe that that means that they aren't out there. Right. It's just wild. So I feel like there are these resources and then it's the work in us as people with access to either ourselves, like you, you hire those freelancers or me to be able to recommend folks Mm -hmm. to people, but it doesn't seem hard to me. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) All right, managers. So, you know, you have your marching orders. (laughs) You have your marching orders. Like they're literally, everyone's creating these sites and I'm just like, Uh, yeah, it doesn't have to be as hard as some people are making it out to be. Really? And LinkedIn exists. And I just feel like, I swear to God, if I go to LinkedIn, and there's a black copy editors or BIPOC copy editors group page. I'm going to scream, Carla. I'm <laughs> well, I'm sure you're scream. familiar with editors of color, that database, right? Yeah. 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 Occasionally people find me that way. Yeah. Because I'm not on that one. I know they do different ones, right? Like they do copy editors and also editor editors, like developmental mm-hmm. editors and stuff like that. But the sources are out there, people. So don't come to us as if we <laughs> don't know. <laughs> yeah. And also... Sometimes if I'm paying close close enough attention, I try to use social media to my advantage of like, if I see an announcement of a book being published by someone I admire that I would really love to work on, I'm like immediate, where is this being published? Do I know a production editor there? Mm-hmm. How do I email them to ask them to hire me? Right. And would you recommend people? I mean, it sounds like you give tests. So usually should people really, if they're reaching out or they're able to say, hey, I have experience, it really is just like, here's my resume and some books I've worked on or... I mean, I recommend if people don't directly know somebody to contact Look mm-hmm. on LinkedIn, find production editors there, email them, mm-hmm. ask them if their imprint has an edit test and offer to take it. Mm-hmm. Like we have a test where I work and, and that's generally the advice I give to. But I'm also fortunate that I'm not tasked with being the one who has to evaluate those tests. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those tests can be doozy depending on who you work for. Because <laughs> I've taken various tests and I'm like, are they messing with me? Uh-huh. Am I crazy? <laughs> 
I mean, the number of items ours has for only being three or four pages long is ridiculous. Right. Yeah, because it's like, no, they're doing more here. I could tell this is this is too light an edit. There's more here. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, if it was a real book in production and there were that many markups on so few pages, you know, mm-hmm. that would be a complete nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't those documents where it's like you start seeing that comment field on the Adobe populate and it's, it keeps going higher and you're like oh no it's mm-hmm. past 200 now this is not good <laughs> or when you, I'm like, not you're okay just, when you have to split it up into like five so it doesn't oh keep god. crashing oh my god <laughs> yeah that I don't miss about the typesetting would be like there are 498 comments and I'm like alright it's going to be a long night <laughs> <laughs> So what do you love most about your job, Carla? Well, I would say like, you know, my mission in my job is trying to help authors make their finished books as perfect as possible. So I really enjoy facilitating that end goal in mind. I like having a hand in copy editing and proofreading. I like being able to read for my job. I think that is a huge aspect of what makes it the dream job. And I like being able to work, especially when I get to work on genres or subjects that interest me. I feel like that's just an added plus. Nice. (laughs) I probably should have asked this question earlier. But in terms of the job itself, you get the manuscript and then there's a bunch of processes that happen Mm -hmm. that I think authors know about because they do get these files along the way and maybe they get them from you directly or maybe they just get it from their editor and the editor is serving as middleman or middle person. But can you kind of go through the process and steps of what the job is? Sure. So when I try to explain what a production editor does, I think one way to really simplify it is when a manuscript is acquired by an acquisitions editor, like what you're doing now, that might happen several months or sometimes years before it ever comes to me. And you're doing content revisions and it only goes into production once they're like, okay, it's finally time to turn this manuscript into a physical finished book. And that's where we start. So I think it's a common misconception a lot of times for authors that they think they're done when a manuscript goes into production. And on my end, it's more like, no, we're we're just getting started. (laughs) Copy editing is usually the first step of production. We send it to a freelancer. They spend several weeks on it. Then it comes back and the author gets several weeks to review it to see if they approve of the way the job was approached. And usually there are many queries raised by the copy editor, so they have to resolve all that. And then it eventually comes back to the production editor. And in-house, we review it, we recopy edit any revised material, we clean up the manuscript, make sure it's tagged and styled to go to the designer. And after another few weeks, we get the design page proof, and then we send it to a freelance proofreader, and at the same time, the author, then we review all those corrections. And in my experience, pretty much every book also gets a second proofread called a cold read. And a lot of times authors will review that as well. And then we're just doing as many correction rounds as we can until we think it's as perfect as possible and or until we run out of time, whichever one comes first. That's always fun. (laughs) (laughs) How how many passes are we going to do? Eight? Nine? Ten? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I always say, like, I think it's humorous how a lot of places operate on the assumption that third pass is final pass because... That is so rarely the case. <laughs> yeah, but that's usually where we're starting to do the audiobook recording. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, third pass. And I'm just like, all right. <laughs> Here's hoping. In the book I, I worked on and I inherited eight passes. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. And I was there for seven of the eight. I inherited the book on second pass where I was like, oh, this should be like four. And then it kept going. And I said, oh my God. <laughs> It's also oh, always yeah. fun when something is a crash and they, they're like, we're just gonna, going to make second pass, final pass, LOL, that's going to happen. <laughs> right. For people who don't know what a crash is, do you want to tell them what the crash is? <laughs> I guess the best way I would describe it is, I think a lot of times it's about six months is like the ideal length of time for a production schedule and something... <laughs> I feel like or, that, that makes me nervous and trained. <laughs> well, maybe that ideal, but maybe well, that isn't what, horrible. That's right. not a crash, right? Because I would not consider six months a crash. Right. I think that's, I guess maybe that's the minimum to not be considered a crash. Maybe that's a better way to describe it. But I feel like a crash is a lot of times something where they want to keep the same pub date in mind, but it usually it might go into production really late or it might have gone through a lot of revisions to slow up the schedule and we still have to make that pub date. So basically the schedule gets very compressed, but we still have to make the book happen on the desired pub date. Is that how you would describe it? Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) To me, like, I've heard crashes of, like, a month, and that just freaked me out. Someone was like, oh, yeah, we did this book, and I was like, do not say that to me. And they made it, and the book did really well. It was a bestseller, but I was like, Don't tell me to find any typos. I don't know. I haven't read the book. (laughs) But I was also like, how did you do that? Because I was like, well, when did the audio get done? <laughs> and I was like, that came out around the same time. That has to come out the same time. So when you have a crash, like, how is the audio being handled? Mm-hmm. I guess that's crashing too. I guess they're just like, or I guess maybe there. A lot of times, I've experienced last minute corrections come or last minute changes that are not necessarily corrections come from the read of the audiobook if the author yeah. read it read it themselves and decided they didn't like mm-hmm. how it sounded anymore. Yeah, I've heard about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of celebrity books I was, like, I was just okay. gonna say that I, I was gonna say whenever anybody tells me they found a typo in a book my first question is did somebody famous write it because they probably read their audiobook and rewrote yeah because there's a big difference between a typo and I don't like this anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like those are two different things y'all mm-hmm. so y'all need to come with it it's very nerve-wracking for some because I have a book I'm working on and the authors just aren't getting there the way they need to. And I'm like, this book cannot be a crash book. I cannot do it. I was like, I can't do it. Because I could see it being like a four-monther, which uh-huh. in trade is just not ideal. It's mm-hmm. not ideal. Something I've been encountering a lot recently coming from the editorial side is if something hasn't come into production yet, we keep getting this, if they're dead set on a specific pug date, we keep getting this question of like, what is the absolute last day I can get it to you? Yes! If still make pub date, if the author will review the copy edit and the first pass overnight and it's like the rest of the people who are going to work on this can't do their jobs overnight so that's yeah, not realistic i remember that i ask it now instead of being <laughs> i was just gonna say I, ho- I hope you're not one of those people now <laughs> i hope you know better <laughs> well i ask about that more with like copy edits when it's more you've gotten the book but mm-hmm. now the authors are taking too much time Uh (laughs) and I'm like when do I when is the absolute last date that I need to get this in back 
for the proofreads or the da 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 da. And I'm like, and I want y'all to tell me the real date, but then I don't tell the author the real date. (laughs) (laughs) I always skim the time off and be like, no, I need it like. If it's not due till Friday, I'm like, I need it Monday. Yes, that's always the first Because I'm like, you're going to inevitably be late anyway. Mm-hmm. I just really wish like more authors understood that the later you are, the later you rewrite, the harder it is for us to make your book as perfect as possible. And the, right. easy, the easier it is for errors to be introduced or for Absolutely. things to fall through the cracks. Absolutely. And it doesn't help when no one's calming people down. Because mm-hmm. my issue now is that I'm trying to protect the production people from the madness, but the agents might not be helping <laughs> calm the authors down. So I'm like, I need you to calm down. Oh, all these messy things happened with my previous book. I don't know what happened because I wasn't there. I didn't work on your book previously. Yeah. I'm working on this book. So yeah. we need to figure this out and not understanding that again, like you said, people are on different coasts. Mm-hmm. So the person who's, typesetting your book could be in California and working my time, but now working over hours to get you something overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I've had that happen where <laughs> the production person was so nice to stay up until 10 PM my time mm-hmm. to get overnight edits to an author. Yes. And to that end, I know I've also seen you tweet about how it's always nice when all the other key players get acknowledged in books because like I was saying before, you know, so it seems like the misconception is when your manuscript goes into production, done, and it's more like there are so many key players that are going to enter the picture now. Right. And if anything, just say, thank everyone who's touched this book. If you don't know all the names, just say thank to everybody who touched this book. Yes. You made it a good book. (laughs) I also think social media has been helpful in that sense too, just because I've had some authors for books that I've worked on a freelancer and they've noticed my name like on the track changes or in Adobe and started following me on social media and last year I finally created my own website and some authors I worked with were really kind to write me testimonials so I feel like these networks have proved to be beneficial in that way I think connecting with people in that sense has definitely been a perk I'm glad you did that (laughs) I'm very glad you have a website now Carla (laughs) (laughs) because I was going to ask about that Um, it was something I'd been thinking about for a long time that became a pandemic project. <laughs> Especially when you freelance, I feel like necessary thing. I always say this on the episode, like writers, please get a website. Please get a website. But freelancers, get a website. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So speaking of, how do people connect with you? And not necessarily to cold call you or pitch you or ask you for work. But if you're open to it, cool. Uh, <laughs> but how can people just get to know you? Because you do tweet about publishing stuff among other things. And I think it's really helpful for people to follow those of us who have different experiences throughout the business. So you're on social media, you have your website, people can hire you, FYIs. Mm -hmm. Yes, my website is just my name, carlabenton.com. And then if you go there, I have links to my Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can find me at all those places. And it's C-A-R-L-A-B-E-N-T-O-N. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. So Carla, thank you so much for being on. Again, it's so nice to talk to production peeps and know you're in the industry, period, whether it's freelancing or looking out for us in various ways and making sure these books get in on time and clean 
and all that good stuff because that's the hard work, y'all. Yeah, I'm really glad we got to have this conversation too. Like I've been following you for a long time and knowing that we have had similar career trajectories. I was definitely interested in this dirty production, copy editing chat with somebody else who has been in it. I just appreciate everyone who takes a moment out of their day to talk to me and be open to being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thank y'all for listening. Again, you can find the podcast at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com and Minorities in Pub on Twitter, as well as Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take care, everybody.